Hello, my name is Marcus Bueller, and I serve as the editor for the new MRS Bulletin Impact section that publishes original research in MRS's flagship journal. I'm very pleased today to be talking with Professor Desiree Plata, the Gilbert Winslow Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at MIT. Today, we'll be discussing work that Professor Plata and co-authors have recently published in MRS, MRS Bulletin Impact titled Oxygen Functionalized Alkyne Precursors in Carbon Nanotube Growth. In this article, they report the development of new methods towards functionalization of carbon nanotubes with heteroatoms, which enables covalent attachment, opening up a whole new world of potential material structures. This research is relevant because common functionalization techniques for carbon nanotube materials and other similar nanostructures are often hazardous and even have adverse environmental impacts and lack precision. In this paper, the authors evaluated an in-situ functionalization technique utilizing oxygen-containing alkyne precursors, which offers a novel, more sustainable pathway for bottom-up engineering of materials. Through a detailed assessment of the mechanisms by which nanotubes form, the researchers were able to direct new pathways towards bottom-up design of materials while considering sustainability and especially environmental health as parameters during optimization and design. On behalf of MRS, I would like to thank you for contributing to IMPACT. Your article is actually one of the first ones published in the new IMPACT section, and we're very excited about the opportunity to learn more from you today. Professor Clara, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. For our general audience, could you please describe and tell us a little bit more about what your paper is about and what the key findings are? Sure. So we try to understand how carbon nanotubes are made. And the reason that this is so important to us is because carbon nanotubes haven't quite met the promise of their potential. And the reason for that is that we have a relatively poor understanding of how the atoms come together in structures. And so we're really limited in how we can control the molecular scale of those structures. One example is trying to functionalize carbon nanotubes. And what that means is incorporate heteroatoms into them so you can attach other things that might say be a receptor for a biological molecule that allows you to sense that molecule all of a sudden, or it might be a tether to another type of element or another type of material. And in today's world, the way that you put those oxygen groups or those heteroatoms on a nanotube structure is basically to boil them in hot acid. And this isn't a particularly environmentally friendly technique. I can talk more about why that is. But the other limitation is that it's essentially a random process. You get oxygen groups where they decide to go um, or where they end up uh, randomly. And so you can't really direct the placement of those structures in the way that you would want to. And so what we've done is try to use our understanding of how nanotubes are made at the fundamental chemical level and say, I want to put an oxygen group here in the nanotube. And then it grows a little more and say, I want to put another oxygen group here. And that could potentially enable new and different structures that we haven't even thought about yet. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's a great example of how material science really connects multiple disciplines, chemistry, engineering, uh, materials design, and also environmental impacts, as you've shown very beautifully in this, in this work. Um, I was curious, have you tried other synthesis approaches that maybe um, <clears throat> could be alternatives? How, how did you come up with this particular way of, of solving this problem and, and offering this new sustainable and even very high precision approach? How did you come up with that? Are there other kind of candidates you went through and how did you, how did you go about that? 
So like with all good materials, science research, we're building on the work of people who have come before us. And so when I first came to understand carbon nanotube synthesis, the dominant way to make carbon nanotubes was through a process called catalytic chemical vapor deposition, which is essentially delivering a hot gaseous precursor uh, made of carbon into a reactive environment and allowing that carbon to precipitate onto a metal structure um, and grow these long-range order carbon nanotube crystals. Um, we wanted to know what types of chemicals were coming out in these reactors that weren't the nanotubes. What were the primary emissions uh, associated with carbon nanotube growth? And so in looking at those chemical precursors, one thing we noticed is that most of the carbon that you put into the reactor actually doesn't end up as nanotubes. Most of it ends up as byproduct. And so we wanted to fix that problem by trying to understand better how to, to make nanotubes, what chemicals in that reactive mix were actually forming the nanostructures. And so we were able to discover that alkynes or um, carbon, two carbon atoms that are connected by a triple bond were the critical ones for forming those carbon nanotubes. Um, the other piece of work that came out from a group at Northeastern University basically showed that the way of functionalizing carbon nanotubes, the status quo hot acid treatment, was primarily responsible for the environmental impact from the process. So um, you've heard people talk about nanotubes potentially being toxic or these emissions from the reaction being bad, but it's actually all the solvents that go into processing them to use them in real products that cause most of the environmental impact. And the reason is for that is that solvents, um, tend, you tend to have high volume requirements and they use a lot of energy in their own production and processing. And that energy, of course, comes with a CO2 footprint and also with uh, mercury emissions, say, if you're uh, generating that electricity from coal. So, um, yeah, sorry, Marcus. Go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so, so what we um, asked ourselves was, could we actually avoid the solvent altogether? Could we think really differently about making um, nanotubes and putting oxygen groups where we wanted to? So we took those triply bonded structures and now attached some oxygen atoms to them and said, will those triply bonded alkyne structures actually bring their oxygen cargo into the nanotube where we want it? And we see that that does happen to some extent. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think one of the things I, I don't, I haven't seen a lot in the discussion on, especially nanomaterials, is the environmental impact. And you mentioned the solvents, you mentioned um, waste, I think, in products that are created that nobody actually understands or are not paid attention to. So uh, could you talk a little broadly about the opportunities? It seems like you have found um, kind of a, a two-way approach where you can uh, minimize the uh, adverse environmental impacts, but also create a better product. And it doesn't seem like many other works right now um, pay attention to this. Of course, there's a lot of research on batteries and on sustainability, um, but in the, in the nano world, we don't see a lot of this work. So I'd like to hear your perspective on, on opportunities beyond the work you have done on nanotubes. Um, there are many other nanomaterials, um, many other materials being created, invented. In fact, in the MRS fall meeting that will happen in a few months, we're gonna hear a lot about exciting new materials discoveries. And I'd like to hear your perspective on how we could kind of win on both sides, make better materials, but also create less environmental impact and have greater sustainability. What are the opportunities there? Oh, there are so many, Marcus. Thanks for asking me that great question. I, first of all, I would say, you know, in my perfect world in the future, 
material scientists and environmental scientists are working together to try to answer some of these questions because trying to do either one in a silo isn't going to work very well. Um, and the second thing I would say uh, is that's really very low hanging fruit for people who are interested in, in learning more about this is to look up you know, the principles of, of green chemistry. And in that you'll find something called E-factor analysis. And it's, a, it's not a great name, but it essentially tries to calculate how much waste goes into making a product. And typical E-factors, say, in the pharmaceutical industry are on the order of 25 to 100. So that means you get about 100 times as much waste as a product as the product you actually make. It's pretty bad in batteries and novel material synthesis as well. Um, in nanomaterials, it tends to be on the order of 100 to 10,000, right? So that's a lot of waste for the, what the product is. And, and we see this again in, in semiconductors and a lot of novel devices like batteries. Now, what I would like to see is those environmental scientists working alongside the material scientists to try to optimize the environmental performance as well as the functional performance. And often we, we can anticipate that those two things will go hand in hand. And the reason it's so important for it to happen at the research phase is that typically when we design a process or a chemistry, we get stuck with that process or chemistry because it's really too costly to go backwards and try and, and reinvent. And then people get nervous, of course, if you change something, you're not going to get the same product. And so what, what we're trying to you know, argue for is that if you, if you do this right from the start with people uh, asking questions about both environmental impact and the better material performance, not only does it enable new discoveries, but it makes it really easy for people to do the environmentally conscious thing because it gives them better material performance. Yeah, it's really interesting. Do you think there's enough um, funding opportunities or collaboration opportunities along this vein of work? And what do you think we could do as a community, as a society of researchers to foster this kind of work and having environmental scientists um, work together with materials engineers to come up with these new kind of products and processes. And as you say, if you make the invention early on, um, they're both on the table during the invention, during the invention disclosures, the patent filings. And um, I, I could imagine that there's a lot of um, barriers there actually currently in the current landscape of funding. Yes, there are so many barriers in the funding landscape and also in the publishing landscape. So it's re been really nice to see the MRS Bulletin Impact provide an opportunity for this transdisciplinary work. Um, that is something that has been a major hurdle um, in my own career and the careers of other people who are interested in publishing in a space where we really need to do good material science, communicate with material scientists, but also do the right type of environmental science and not just do lip service to say, oh, I have a new battery technology or new solar cell, um, but really do the rigorous work. So uh, in, on the funding landscape, uh, the problem is similar. The backgrounds of the people serving as reviewers um, at some of the, the biggest programs are uh, not necessarily well tailored to these types of problems. And the programs themselves are not well tailored to these types of problems. And the reason, um, you know, there are many reasons for that. Uh, how we get over it is, is, is tricky. Um, and I would say that one opportunity right now exists in the funding of um, convergence research. So this is the, the new keyword that's being tossed around. Um, and what convergence research means is that it actually draws very heavily on multiple different disciplines. And I think that that is great. Uh, and in, in the right vein so that you can start to connect economists, material scientists, environmental scientists, social scientists. Um, but uh, the, the challenge that I see is, is actually getting uh, the right compositions of reviewers <laughs> in order to allow those, those papers um, to go through. Uh, 
So, so convergence research is one opportunity. A second opportunity I would highlight is in data science. Um, and so you hear a lot about uh, people trying to make data more findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And that's great. Each of us should be doing experiments that are going to go beyond our own discovery and inform several other discoveries. This, this just makes sense. Um, but oftentimes, the way the experiment is constructed or the way that the paper is articulated um, prevents us from using that data in the future. And so it's my hope that potentially by coordinating researchers in a more meaningful way, we could start to collect data on the same materials for their environmental performance, their functional performance, maybe some other aspects that we haven't thought about before, um, and start to actually uh, use computers to help us learn faster and integrate those apparently disparate topics. Yeah, interesting. Um, so to say, if you, you think about somebody wanting to go into this field, you know, they read your paper and they're excited and they come from a more traditional materials research community, how would you suggest they enter this field? Um, are they going to, should they look for um, someone like you who has an environmental science background, but also a chemistry background and is passionate about materials? Um, or how, how do you go about this if you want to enter this field, either as a young researcher, maybe coming out of a PhD or a professor or a senior researcher, any, any level in his or her career? And how do, you, how do you get into this, I think, very exciting field of materials research right now? Yeah, materials research is very exciting, and it's hard even to find, you know, the best um, students in the area because you need to know so many things in order to do materials research well. But that should be encouraging to people because it means that everybody is learning, you know, and, and you really just have to come to it with an open mind and be willing to learn. Of course, we love to see fundamental um, strengths in, in knowledge and in, in computer science and materials, chemistry, whatever, whatever the subfield may be, and all of those things are, are really necessary to make advances in, in good material science and especially this newish field of environmental uh, or environmentally oriented materials science. Um, I think for, for young researchers and young professors who are interested in getting into this field, the thing I, I guess that um, I would encourage would be to not just think about how we can use materials to help the environment, but actually thinking about how we can make materials in a better way that's more um, implicitly benign for environmental processes in, in the earth system. And that was really something that I think that um, we tried to bring to this field to say, not, don't just look at the bench um, and don't just look at the material, but think about everything else that has to go into the system and, and come out of the system as well. Um, and so focusing on those kind of fundamental discoveries and that fundamental learning can really extend the, the impact of your work. So you haven't just made you know, a little water treatment device that's going to be useful to a small group of people, but maybe some it contributed some fundamental knowledge that's going to launch a whole field of materials. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so in, in your personal case, you had a, your PhD is from Woods Hole, which is more of a traditional environmental science or in, yeah, environmental science and engineering uh, degree, studying nature and oceans and things like this. How did you get into materials research? It seems like a little bit unusual path. Um, what's your story kind of getting into studying the impacts of materials generation, materials in general, and how do you, how do you work at this frontier of uh, nanomaterials generation, which is really one of the cutting edge areas in materials research, and you're bringing this together with your own expertise, uh, your your, back, your 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 original background in environmental science, and it seems like a very unique combination. I haven't seen a lot of researchers like this. How did? What's your story behind that? Yeah, the, um, so I was an oil spill chemist at the beginning of my PhD work, and I was really studying the fate 
of uh, aromatic hydrocarbons in the marine environment. So you spill some oil, you've got these cyclic structures, and I was trying to understand how sunlight would degrade those structures. And it was great and exciting work and taught me a lot of really good skills. But one thing that bothered me was that I wasn't able to stop the oil spill from happening. I couldn't go back in time and stop the environment from being negatively impacted. And I, and I really wanted to have work that was going to prevent damage because it is so hard to to clean it up after it's already been, um, been recognized as a problem. You know, a great example is, is cancer. You know, it's, it, uh, you can imagine how difficult it is to treat and cure cancer. It'd be much nicer to not have it in the first place and be able to make some strategic interventions to do that. And so I was, I was really lucky to um, be at, uh, at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which has the joint program in oceanography with MIT. And so I um, asked my PhD advisors at the time if I could go knocking at doors uh, at MIT and see who was making what new. And the latest you know, material on the street at the time was carbon, was carbon nanotubes. And I said, well, I know something about measuring aromatic hydrocarbons. I should be able to figure out something about measuring carbon nanotubes. And I couldn't really anticipate at that time all this discoveries we would make about the fundamentals of nanotube formation. But what I did know is that the work that we were doing was going to be some of the first to really ask this question about how we can prevent environmental damage first. And it was my hope that that would um, launch many other opportunities um, in materials research and environmental science. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you, Professor Plata, and congratulations again to you and your team on this excellent, uh, very interesting, very timely piece of work. Um, and also, congrats on publishing one of the first papers, where, as you know, it's a new section in the MS Bulletin, and um, yeah, your paper is one of the first ones that came out earlier this year. Um, so I look forward to um, chatting more with you in the future and hope to see you in one of the upcoming MRS meetings. Um, thank you for joining us today. Um, for more news, visit the MRS Bulletin website at mrsbulletin.org. And follow us on Twitter at MRS Bulletin. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.